Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Figuring out how to really break down risk and communicate it, both through storytelling and with numbers, so that we're building a bridge between capital and investors on the one hand, and really good, solid projects that are going to perform and transform lives. Auburn is that bridge. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, hey, welcome back to another episode of Suncast. I'm thrilled that you've chosen to spend your most valuable resource here with us. That is your time. And I'm excited to bring you today's guest. Today's entrepreneur is a friend and returning guest to Suncast. In fact, Karen Berardo was one of the first guests on Suncast. She had the distinction of the first two-part episode airing way back in February 2016 as episodes number 10 and 11. She had another distinction as well. She was the first female guest on Suncast. That interview contains truly some timeless advice. So I'd love to see you go back in the archives and cue it up for a listen as well. Karin went on to become CEO of a global clean tech hedge fund and has a well-established track record leading investment in the sector. She's also become one of the leading experts on the topic of ESG. Not sure what ESG means? You're not alone. So I asked Karen to unpack this buzzword topic for us in today's episode. There's so much beyond the very practical advice and insights that she provides. So I hope that you've got your notepad ready. But for now, let's tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. For those who are unfamiliar, Karen Berardo has a long history as, a, as an investor, as an executive in the solar industry. She brings 25 plus years of experience in public and private equity, public policy and economic development, cut her teeth in the Amazon of Brazil. And if you do want that story, I suggest you do go back and listen to episode 10 of Suncast. She's currently the ESG lead for Chicago Global. If you're unfamiliar with the term ESG, have no fear because that's why, in fact, you are here today. We are going to learn from Karin what ESG means, what's up in, uh, in ESG. Karin has recently forayed into the world of uh, entrepreneurship uh, after a long, long stint as a corporate executive. She's now the CEO of Abrin, an advisory company focused on impact investing, clean tech and infrastructure assets in emerging markets. You've structured a little over uh, the 1B, right? A billion in investments uh, for clients. Uh, you have been involved in Stump Energy, M&W, Clean Path, Muni. Uh, you were at Muni May before it, 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 it joined to become uh, MMA Ventures, right? That's right. I was around employee number 13 when it was just an affordable housing or just, it was an affordable housing finance shop. So got my early start in project finance for housing and infrastructure. Give us the script notes version of how you found your way into clean energy. 
When I look back at the last 30 years, I think the overarching theme of my career has been that fundamentally I'm a sustainability junkie. Found myself, I studied anthropology as an undergrad, found myself in the Amazon working on sustainable farming, agriculture, logging, natural resources. And at a certain point along that journey, realized that I needed to lean into and embrace the language of finance to really be able to help bring forward transformation in the communities that I wanted to impact and in the environment. In the early 90s, Brazil was a brand new democracy, and we were just starting to think about climate change and disaster, but we weren't really using the term sustainability yet. And when I eventually went and got my master's in public policy and my MBA from the University of Chicago, I didn't find any colleagues in the classroom who even understood what I was talking about. And so I have held both of these sides of myself, the anthropologist and the the social cultural activist on the one hand, and the finance and policy person on the other, and really constructed a career trying to hold those two. And sometimes it's been a little more heavy on the finance side. And now I'm I'm grateful to be bringing those two sides together. Just real quick, as you said, I spent about nine years doing affordable housing finance and commercial real estate finance. We were the largest tax credits indicator in the U.S. And in 2006, decided to enter into tax credits and renewables. And we launched the first solar tax equity funds in the U.S. with MMA Renewable Ventures, bought by Photowatio, then sold to Sun Edison. And I think some of those assets are in the Terraform portfolio now. (laughs) We were on the frontier. We did a lot of crazy new things in rooftop solar finance and Nellis Air Force Base that today are just so boring and old hat, you know, no one would believe how outrageous it was in the day. But what I did was go overseas. And so starting in 2014, uh, became head of emerging markets for M&W, an EPC company. And then since we've talked, I went and joined Stumpf Energy. I was their CEO. In fact, the first female CEO in Uh, Abu Dhabi Global Markets, running a uh, renewable energy finance company. We launched uh, activities and portfolios in Thailand and the Philippines. We were doing distributed solar development and um, behind-the-meter projects in Africa. And really bringing a new model, um, some of the stuff that, that folks in the U.S. are pretty familiar with, but going into those new markets, they were really cutting edge. So it was an exciting time and it was an incredible learning and it really informed me to see where the similarities are in the U.S. markets and also where we need to create some new tools around risk management, credit risk management, investor understanding and development skills when we go into emerging markets. And so that's a lot of where my practices at Auburn, both working with investors and with developers, and then also specifically within Chicago Global, focusing on the investor side to bring more impact capital and make it available so that we can transform our infrastructure and sustainability into the future, into the next generation. The, the reason that the opportunity for us to jump in and record a follow-up interview and bring you back in in 2019 is that you have become uh, a voice of experience 
a voice of expertise and reason in a world where folks are actively trying to grapple with how do we incorporate the ideas of impact, uh, social impact, investing, or impact investing for impact into public markets, public companies, and environments where up to now, there's just been a big fear of greenwashing, uh, certainly even more so outside of the US public markets in global markets where as oil companies and, and the like begin to really invest in earnest into the energy transition, there's this terminology that came into play. I remember you mentioned it in a phone call we had recently and you said, I really am leaning into this thing, this whole, the whole ESG. And you, you kept rolling like I knew what ESG was. <laughs> and you didn't catch the deer in the headlights look where I was just like Googling in the background. Yeah. So I thought it'd be really good for us to begin with this idea that we're in an investment environment now where sustainability is in the forefront. And maybe we could address why sustainability reporting for public companies and for private uh, investors is important what the role of those investors are, what ESG is, how it's come to the forefront as a topic. And I know I've had my deer in the headlights look a lot and am used to just trying to roll with it. Eventually, I learned that when I finally did raise my hand and ask the question, there was just this audible sigh of relief, like everyone else who wanted to ask the question too. <laughs> it's like, thank God she did. I do find actually another theme for me has been to be a bit of a translator, of a language translator, and to help spell things out. I'm a bit of a bridge walker between investment banking and social, you know, sustainable investing. And so I'm really grateful for this opportunity. Before you jump in, I want to acknowledge that maybe the question I want to ask is, in this room with the collective sigh, what's the gender makeup in that environment, right? Is it you, the, the female, finally pre hitting the pressure relief valve of all the men who are trying to fake it? I do feel like you're serving this dual purpose, like almost the mother saying, hey, can we talk about this? For a long time, I was the only woman in the room and I thought everyone else knew the answer and I didn't want to re reveal myself to be ignorant. Something happened, believe it or not, when I started working a little bit more in the Middle East and it was even more unusual to have a woman in the room there um, even getting my visa the first time I went to Saudi Arabia, for example, they pushed it back three times and said, this must be a mistake. Why would you want to come to Saudi Arabia? And I think there was this feeling that it was so unusual for me to be there that I was either an alien or I must be some kind of amazing rock star because why would they send a woman? And I really embraced my alien personality <laughs> and realized that I could ask and say kind of anything I wanted. <laughs> I found that spending some time in the Middle East really empowered me <laughs> in ways that, um, you know, subsequently, yes, frequently I will ask questions. It may be that there are other women who come up to me afterwards and say, thanks so much for asking. And it may be that it's it's the guys too, you know, and I think the fact of the matter is our world is so complex and we are bombarded with so much information and I know that I can't handle all of it and make sense of all of it. And I really need the community to be a part of, to help me understand it all. Take us down the path of how you got involved with ESG, starting first and foremost with defining what, what the acronyms uh, are and how this is sort of the natural evolution from your career of having invested at very high levels and across the world with sustainability and other types of funds. ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. 
and it is a platform for reporting information about a company. ESG is a shorthand, you know, for kind of thinking about uh, responsibility, but from from my perspective, it's really around providing more information about how companies work. It's a small piece, actually, in terms of a bigger framework around impact and social responsibility in a whole bunch of different reporting. And so right now, when I talk about ESG, I really think more about public companies that report under an SEC framework where they have required reporting, but it may not be giving us enough of the right information to really understand the value and the risk of a company. Yeah. And as you were explaining that, having been among the few early in beginning of the 2000s to the MBA programs that were starting to talk about corporate social responsibility, that's when CSR and sustainability really began to proliferate and kind of make it into the mainstream, as it were. I look at ESG and I think, well, where does ESG fit within CSR? You know, this acronym is alphabet soup at the end of the day mm-hmm. on this on this episode for sure. But um, corporate social responsibility is one of those things where it's begun to become uh, expected of companies and in particular public companies and the movements of like B Corps, et cetera. So is this a push or a pull strategy for ESG? And, and then where does it fit within this overall idea of corporate social responsibility? In you know your financial statements, there's a pretty set metrics that you report on. The financial statements are pretty much the financial statements. We have the generally accepted accounting principles, the GAAP financials, or the international financial standards, IFRS. But when we get beyond financial metrics and start talking about environmental metrics, social metrics, and governance metrics, they're not metrics (laughs) frequently. And so what a lot, because we don't have firm quantitative data, then there's no real standards about what's getting reported, how it's getting reported, why it's getting reported, and what to do with it. And so the movement in ESG is trying to get more standards and so that we can start to compare companies within an industry across you know, apples to apples against each other. I'm making a conjecture here, but it seems like you know, there are fund managers who are saying, we want to help responsibly invest in companies. And we've made a stated goal to invest in companies that are ascribing to certain corporate social responsibility ideals and, and that have these environmental and social impact management elements to them. But there really isn't an overall metric for how we can compare how one company's doing to another. With, and, and in particular, the only way you could do that is with publicly traded companies, right? Absolutely. And I think that we're seeing a lot of acceptance or at least interest in consumption of ESG data exactly from asset managers and portfolio managers like you're talking about, because they do want a metric to compare you know, a dozen different oil and gas companies as an example and to say, are any of these better doing a better job than the other at really understanding that natural resources are limited or that they might be using more water or more have more environmental impact than another and trying to uh, proactively adapt their behavior to mitigate their environmental impact, right? And so you might take a, a dozen different companies within an industry and some are just kind of clear-cutting 
the area and others are kind of saying, yeah, we are in an extractive industry and we're also going to start investing in new energy resources and renewables because we as a corporation see our long-term strategy for success to be sustainable. We've got to change our portfolio mix from extractive into more renewable. And if I have a choice between investing in those two companies, I'm going to see that the company that's thinking about the long term is a company that we're also gradually seeing is getting more rewarded with higher valuations, less stock price volatility, and Mm -hmm. that's a better investment for you to make. I want to, uh, with your permission, read something from uh, the document that, that you guys have compiled with Chicago Global that outlines the vision and does a glowing job of presenting you as the person responsible for uh, organizing ESG on behalf of Chicago Global and its clients. You state here, ESG data can reflect how a company identifies, monitors, and manages its exposure to these crucial non-financial metrics with enormous potential impact on long-term financial performance. And then at the sort of another bullet point down below, you say, when appropriately integrated into company risk analysis, and this is going back to what you just said, risk analysis, reporting, and valuation, these factors can reduce pricing volatility resulting from the controversy and regulatory shocks and commodity resource fluctuations typically, I'm adding here in my brackets, typically associated with these non-financial metrics. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that gets back to the the point I was making before about information. Do consumers have enough information about what they're buying and do investors have enough information about what they're investing in? I think pre-financial crisis, and I was in the real estate industry before the financial crisis, we saw this insanity building up, and it hasn't necessarily changed, around quarterly returns. And public companies are, are always focused on their quarterly returns. And the issue when you're just focused on quarterly returns or even biannual elections, you don't make decisions around the long-term sustainability of your business or your country. <laughs> and so it's not so much that we don't need quarterly returns. It's, it's one metric, but it's not the only metric. And I think by adding in the ESG information from the quote you just read indicates that it gives us more information to not just understand what's going to happen in the next 12 weeks, but also what's the trajectory for the next 12 months, 24 months, you know, five years, does this company really treat uh, its longevity (laughs) in a serious manner? And is it doing things that are respectful for the people, the planet, and the prosperity of its stakeholders? You know, the solar industry is increasingly competitive. How are you differentiating yourself and your company to close more sales? Our friends over at Aurora Solar you know, the NREL validated solar sales and design tool that I've been mentioning lately? Well, they've conducted over a year of research into understanding precisely what makes a solar sales proposal succeed. And they've agreed to share their insights with Suncast listeners in a free ebook. It's called The Solar Sales Playbook for Proposals That Close. You can go to mysuncast.com forward slash Aurora to download this playbook for free. And if we've done our job right, you should also see the link in the description for this episode in your podcast player. Check it out. And thanks to Aurora for this amazing free resource.
you know, you've been through quite a journey, not just from a career perspective, but even over the last bit of time since you've left Stump in trying to decide where you are going to focus your effort. Help me understand a bit for those who may like you be at a point in their career where they have the luxury to be able to step back and say, is this really what I want to do tomorrow? Right? Like that, that famous uh, Steve Jobs quote, if today was your last day, would you do what you're going to be doing? What sort of mental gymnastics have you been going through? What sort of framework, <laughs> what sort of framework, if any, might you offer to those who uh, follow behind you? Where I have been going to gui- for guidance in the last really two years of my journey has been a lot of time on the meditation cushion and really going deep into my soul, my spirit, what speaks to me, what's, what I'm aligned to, and also where I see my purpose leading. And on the bigger platform, I do want to have a big impact. Uh, one of the things that has been driving me for the last 30 years, really, is before I even knew these were the terms, but it's figuring out how to bring a lot of money into sustainable infrastructure. And now through the UN, uh, the SDGs, there's a number around that, which is somewhere around $3 trillion need to go into sustainable infrastructure and emerging markets. And I want to be part of that solution. You know, when we first started talking about what has become Auburn, you were talking a lot to me about this idea of conscious capitalism. I know that's something close to you. How do you envision being able to tie this idea of conscious capitalism into the work that you do moving forward? My t-shirt literally says, elevating humanity through business. And I believe that capitalism, the next generation of capitalism, uh, is one where we can align people, planet, and prosperity with private capital, and we need to. And my role, as I see myself and Auburn, the role is to support investors on the one side to make greater impact with their capital. And I do that by working with Chicago Global as their ESG advisor and also with private equity investors in finding private sector investments that make a big impact. And on the other side of the bridge are developers who are seeking to have real impact in the developments that they're doing and need some tools to get across the bridge into the capital. And so along those lines, I'm working with sustainable agriculture projects in southern sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. I'm working in affordable housing in West Africa and in large renewable energy projects in Latin America and in Africa. And in all of those cases, it's around development fundamentals that we all know and figuring out how to really break down risk and communicate it, both through storytelling and with numbers so that we're building a bridge between capital and investors on the one hand and really good solid projects that are going to perform and transform lives. Auburn is that bridge. Are there any particular influencers in your life that you'd point to, mentors that have shaped the way you think about not only your own work, but have also given you inspiration to to mentor and guide others? You know, I think over the years, what... I'm learning to be more authentic is to really know who my customer is and what they want, but also to know who I am 
and not apologize for who I am and what I can bring to the table. And so making sure that I'm operating from a place of authenticity and really aligning with and resonating with my client and my customer and my partner. And sometimes that's meant that I need to change who my clients and partners are. But when it works, then you get a lot more result for the energy that you invest. Would there be a moment in time where either you very clearly saw a dead end and turned to in a new direction, or you very clearly saw an inflection point that you'd want to remark about that you sort of defines your career? It doesn't have to define your career. It could define just a period or a moment that you look back on and go, holy shit, that actually did change my life. I've had the benefit of having some wonderful successes and also some failures. And as I reflect on the really challenging moments, and I may have actually, we may have talked about this in our last conversation. In fact, one of the things that frequently happens when I start to lose direction is I get spun in high gear on delivering tasks and not so much on making sure that I'm doing the right, the right work. And as I've moved my way up the corporate ladder and into you know, higher leadership and CEO roles, I have tried to work harder and not always succeeded in working smarter. And two huge things that tricks, I think, or tricks, resources that I have developed in myself to try to manage that better are to actually pull back not lean in, but lean back, <laughs> and to take more time to understand what the objectives are and to think about the smartest next move. And also, the second would be to really look at my team and my resources and recognize I don't have to do all of this, and I've got some great team members, and how can I be a better manager, delegator, and mentor and leader myself? And that frequently when I'm feeling out of control, it's because I've taken on too much, and I've got lots of people around me who are asking to help, and I need to learn to trust that process better. I know you have your stack sitting beside you because you're ready for this. What book have you recommended or gifted the most, and why? Well, the book I've recommended the most is a very tactical book. Not so much about spirit and soul purpose, but it's called Slicing Pie, Funding Your Company Without Funds. Yeah, is this, the, this is the book about the slicing pie model, right? It's Mike Meyer, Mike Moyer, sorry. It's just kind of a very tactical, handy book since most of us in the renewables business have been in a startup at some point, And many of us have been asked to work for equity <laughs> or understand you know, what kind of equity arrangement is a fair arrangement. And this is a great tool that anytime someone starts talking to me about equity, I say, let's read that book and then we can come back and have that conversation. What books have most shaped or influenced your leadership or personhood? What, and maybe I'll ask the same question I probably asked back in episode 10. What's on your nightstand? <laughs> well, there are two books, two or three books, two books that are on my nightstand right now. One is The Untethered Soul, which Whoa. is a great book. <laughs> Sounds like you know it. <laughs> I, knew you. I knew you were going to get an esoteric on me, so I'm loving it. Go right to the, yeah, right to the spiritual journey and uh, peering deep into the waters of your own truth and 
uh, willingness to confront yourself. And I'm on um, my third way through that book. It's one of those books that I learn something new on every time. Another book that's a bit of a, a spiritual journey is called The Wild Edge of Sorrow. And it's literally on my nightstand right now. So I, I don't have it. I think it's Francis Weller is the writer. And it's about grief and grieving. And one of the things that we've lost in uh, U.S. culture, at least, is the ability to grieve in public. Grieving is something that's shameful and people go into a closet to do. And in fact, one of the pieces that's really powerful for me in that book and, and the work that a, a friend of mine is doing is in supporting us as a collective, as a community and a society to grieve the planetary collapse that we're facing right now and to grieve the loss of uh, species diversification and waterways and clean air. And we need to learn to look at these losses to move forward and to say, it's really there. And now what am I going to do about it? And not get paralyzed by grieving, but actually to use it to energize us and to rebuild the world that we want to be in. My third book recommendation is called Sacred Commerce, A Blueprint for a New Humanity. And it's Eamon Sawaf and Rowan Gabrielle. And this has been, Eamon Sawaf was very in, instrumental in emotional intelligence frameworks in leadership and management and uh, interacting models for interacting with people in a more emotionally intelligent way. One of the things I love about this book, Sacred Commerce, it talks about the role of historically ancient, a merchant priest or a merchant priestess and the role of commerce as being a sacred engagement that would make people be involved in trading in a way that was nonviolent <laughs> and that would actually promote the betterment of society. And I really love that image for myself as a merchant priestess that's bringing together different components of commerce so that we can elevate ourselves to a higher level of capitalism. What habit or consistent practice has had the greatest impact on your life? Sitting on the cushion. Mm, back to the cushion, yeah. Back to the cushion. All questions go to the cushion. I get up every morning and do about a minimum of 10 minutes of yoga. And, you know, that itself was a habit that I did occasionally or sporadically. And I really needed, I wanted to create into more intentionality. Started with five minutes a day. And now I'm, you know, I, I do what I need to do. And sometimes I'll do it. Um, it's definitely in the morning and sometimes in the evening also. It is such a critical habit and, uh, and shared among many uh, powerful leaders. Thank you for sharing that. Where can people find you? How can they learn more about Auburn? Absolutely. I look forward to seeing people out in the, um, on the interwebs. I am at Karin at Auburn.biz. K-A-R-I-N. Yes, K-A-R-I-N at Aubryn, A-B-R-E-N dot biz. Come to the website, Aubryn, A-B-R-E-N dot biz. Uh, there will be she's a She's dropping super value bombs on, uh, on the topic that she is, or lots of topics around finance and ESG. Yep, new blog coming out in the next day or so on capitalism and ESG. And then also check us out at chicago.global 
which is the public equity fund that I am advising on ESG, um, and that's www.chicago.global, and learn more about what they're doing in the public equity space. Last but not least, Karin, let's end, as we always do, with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? Your crystal ball ought to be clear by now. What's there? What do you see? I'm seeing our sector, the renewable energy sector, getting a lot more focused on impact outcomes and embracing that and making it a critical part of the projects that we bring to market going forward. And I think by doing that, we're going to be able to enter into some new spaces, some new markets that have been difficult for us to crack the code on up to now. And I look forward to meeting everyone over there and helping you out if you have any questions. Karin Barardo is the CEO and founder of Auburn, an advisory focused on impact investing. She also is the ESG lead at Chicago Global. And I hope that you have enjoyed spending this time with us. Thank you for joining, Karin. Thanks so much for having me here. It's always a pleasure, Nico. Well, that's a wrap, Solar Warrior. But please do stick around for another couple of minutes. If you'd loved what you've heard here today, please take the time to subscribe in Spotify, iTunes, or somewhere else that you happen to be listening. It would also be fantastic if you would rate and review the podcast on iTunes. It does help us and others as they can find this show and you'll pass along some great karma. And thanks to many of you for your recent shout outs on Twitter and LinkedIn. Your recommendation is perhaps the highest compliment we can receive. And to learn more about today's guest or past episodes, just click on that listen link at mysuncast.com, which is where the rest of the archive for Suncast episodes live. That'll take you to the episodes page, by the way. There you'll get the show notes, social media and web links, and fantastic book recommendations and back catalog of all those interviews we mentioned, chock full of goodies, just like this one with Karn. You know, I'm so happy that you chose to be here again this week. I hope you'll come back next week. Stay tuned. And remember, you are what you listen to. So thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. Kia, Solar Warrior!